Truly, Jesus is risen. Alleluia. He's still risen. (laughs) Today we celebrate the octave day of Easter. And so while this is the eighth solar day since Easter Sunday, if you're thinking, Father Matt, you're having some trouble counting, no, it's because the Romans would always include the current day in the count. So eight, it's the eighth day since Easter Sunday. But the church has considered this simply one long day, one long Easter day. Today, we also celebrate Divine Mercy Sunday. This insight of God's steadfast mercy can assist us as we continue to reflect on the meaning of the resurrection in our lives. Because the resurrection and even God himself has the concept of mercy at its core. So for Easter to truly make sense, we need to know why God did what he did. And to know why God did what he did, we need to know just a little bit more about God. Namely, we need to answer the question, who is this God that we worship? To really answer that question, though, it's going to require us to go back in time. Because to understand what makes our conception of God different than, say, the pagan understanding of God, we have to go back to the time of Exodus, when God revealed himself so well to the Israelite people. We have to go back to that time because that is the time when God himself tells us what makes him different than all of these other pagan conceptions of who God is, than all of these other false gods. At the time of the Exodus, there were a lot of religions in the world. If you thought there were a lot of different religions now, We got nothing on Exodus. With all of those religions, there were many, many false gods. If you look at the patterns, though, of all these religions, there seem to be two deities that are the most important. In the land of the Canaanites, which is where Israel and those people grew, the two chief gods were Baal and his consort, Asherah. Perhaps they had other names, but these tended to be the most worshipped deities because they stood for two very important things. Baal was the god of power, like actual power over people, control and strength. And Asherah was the goddess of fertility, These were the two traits most desired by those ancient peoples because those are the two traits that seemed to lead to their civilizations prospering and continuing amongst all of the others. You needed power to hold on to what you and to what your people had, and you needed fertility so that you would have more people. But the Israelites had an entirely different conception of God. 
power and fertility they knew was not the defining trait of the God that they worshipped. The defining trait of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was mercy. Is mercy. If we read the Old Testament with eyes open to that reality, that God starts with mercy at His core, we see that He is constantly reinforcing this understanding for those Israelite people. This is perhaps most obvious in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, to set the scene. The Israelite people had just gotten done worshiping the golden calf or some other horrible atrocity. There's a lot of awful things the Israelites did during the Exodus. God sees it and is angered. Moses implores mercy from God. And of course God's going to grant mercy. Moses also asks to see the face of God, to see God again, because he hasn't been able to see him for a while. And so God grants Moses' request. He says, go up the mountain. I will hide my face from you, because if you saw my face, surely you would die. But I will pass in front of you and proclaim my name to you. So that's Exodus 33, like verse 19 or something. He says, I will proclaim my name to you. So here about a chapter later, we are on the mountain. God is passing before Moses. And when he announces his name, this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love and fidelity, continuing his love for a thousand generations and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet not declaring the guilty guiltless, but bringing punishment for their parents' wickedness on children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, don't get overly fixated on that last sentence there. Our English translation here makes God sound very much darker than he is. But what he is saying is that while he forgives our sins, the effects of those sins last well beyond the event of that individual sin, even well beyond the lifetime of that person who committed that sin. But I could preach a whole other homily on just that sentence, so I'm, we'll save it for that, okay? Instead, let's look at those first words God speaks of himself. Now, if we go back to the ancient sources, to the Hebrew and to the Greek, we get a slightly more literal translation. Lord, Lord, God merciful and gracious. If you ever wondered what that sounded like in Hebrew, here you go. Adonai, Adonai. El-Rachum Vechanun. And then in Greek, it's more of a tongue twister, so I'm not going to say that one today. Anyways, Lord, Lord, God merciful and gracious. God considers himself to be above all. The first thing he says about himself is that he is 
a merciful God. To us, this seems fairly obvious. But we live in a world where the Israelite understanding of God has become the Christian understanding of God. And that has become the dominant understanding of God. But in those days, those thousands of years ago, where most of the world followed deities of power and fertility, most people would have considered this entire idea of God to be weak and powerless and preposterous. A merciful God? No. They would not have accepted that. And that is perhaps one reason that the Bible tells us about Israel's constant struggle to stay faithful to God. Because mercy does seem weak and powerless. But through time, we have seen that it is not. We have seen that mercy actually conquers all. And that the culmination of mercy was that day, those thousands of years ago, when Jesus conquered death on a cross for us. But how? How does mercy prevail? How is mercy more powerful than power? How is mercy more fertile than fertility? Think about what happens when God shows us his mercy. What happens when we show mercy? Because to start off with, showing mercy implies that some sort of evil is being done. Evil is nothingness. It's literally nothing. If you talk to a philosophy professor, at least any of them who've studied any sort of medieval philosophy, they'll tell you that. Evil is nothing. It cannot create. It can only destroy. Evil is predatory upon the good. But when we confront evil with mercy, we deny the goal of that evil. We prevent the destruction that was intended by that evil. And we turn it into something creative, even if it's only creative in our hearts. Now, when God shows mercy, it's even more powerful. Because in those cases, God can take an evil that is already done, a destruction that has already happened, and recreate something good from it. You know, God, He created the entire universe out of nothing. And so He can surely create something, recreate something that has been destroyed by evil. We call this recreation mercy. Even now, in these times, we see examples of this. It's easy to look around and see the pain and destruction, the heartbreak, everything wrought by the evil effects of the current coronavirus pandemic. But if we honestly 
look around, we see that God is still creating, always creating in the wake of all this destruction. If we look around, we see the solidarity of people awakened by God who join together to support their brothers and sisters through these hard times, through whatever has befallen them. If we look around, we see that God has recreated and reawakened the ingenuity and the creativity in science and in industry to confront this common evil. We have seen God awaken in our hearts, recreate in us this emphasis on the common good and the recognition that, yes, we are individuals, beloved persons in the eyes of God, but we each have a responsibility to contribute to the good of society, the betterment of society, the safety of society. God is always creating. And so God's triumph of mercy, despite and perhaps even through suffering, is a cause for joy. A little further on in St. Peter's first letter than what we read today, he writes, Rejoice when you share in some measure the sufferings of Christ so joy will be yours and triumph when his glory is revealed. God's mercy is not obvious. It is strange. But through God's mercy, the mercy of the Father, death and sin are conquered. The destroyers are destroyed. God's mercy blesses us so that despite any blindness of our senses, we who have not seen can believe. St. Peter in today's first reading said, God's great mercy gave us a new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. God's consistent, His continual, His eternal response to evil is mercy. His greeting to the disciples today is, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I have sent you. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, on a mission of divine mercy to humanity. And today, Christ sends us on that same mission. As we celebrate God's mercy upon us today, let us strive to imitate His mercy in our lives. Let us strive to see God's mercy coursing throughout all of the world, God's recreation coursing throughout all of the world, despite 
whatever our feeble senses tell us. Let us strive to see that mercy. But most of all, let us surrender ourselves to the love of the Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, merciful and compassionate, saying to him, Jesus, I trust in you.